Hey guys, O'Reilly here. Episode 31 is upon us, and with it brings Jonathan Shanky, a musician, producer, mixing, and mastering engineer who uncoincidentally worked on last week's guest, Telecomo's debut LP. Uh, but his talents sort of extend beyond miking up hungover Ottawa boys, if you can believe it. His band, Eaters, is an experimental group whose love of texture bleeds through just about every song that they touch. As a mastering engineer, he's worked on the likes of Sun Ra recordings, and as a producer, he's worked alongside Liturgy and Girl Talk, amongst hundreds of others. So, he's kind of a dude who knows his stuff. I sat down with him, and we talked about the role of the producer in the age of self-recording, how to incorporate home demos and final recordings, and I really wanted to get a sense of how someone who's worked on so many different releases sees their own style evolve over time. Because uh, I think that's something that's pretty, pretty, pretty interesting. Um, so, episode 31, Jonathan Shanky. I think you're going to enjoy it.
now that we're entering into you know the age of prosumer equipment, like you can pick up like a condenser microphone for forty bucks on eBay or uh, like Amazon now. Are you seeing a lot more people coming in with more like knowledge of mixing? I I, I hesitate to say ma- mastering, but like sort of production tools that sort of thing and like how has that affected your relationship with uh bands that come in that ask specifically for mixing or production help yeah i mean i i certainly see a lot of that and there's there's a lot of records that i don't record at all that people record by themselves or with other people and they send to me to to work on and you know obviously like for me the 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 most exciting way is to build it up from scratch you know where you're having the the conversation beforehand of what you're going for and, you know, try and set up the recording situation in such a way to see that through and then being there for the takes and working on the mix and really just like making the record the way you want it to be. But budgets aren't always there. A lot of people, (laughs) a lot of people are, are like really particular or really gifted or a big at recording or that like that the way in which they, recording the range is a crucial part of the sound in which case i come in later in the picture and that's that's cool too it, it pretty open to it honestly it's just sort of like like i said earlier you know whatever makes the most sense for the project so sometimes there's stuff that's been recorded in a studio that comes my way sometimes it's like home recordings or a combination of the two and it's just like okay well uh how's this puzzle fit together (laughs) (laughs) it's fun it's fun though you know it keeps you on your toes yeah i gotta imagine and because you you do it not just uh, according to your website uh not just at uh woos but also you've got like a mobile recording rig yeah yeah um and that that kind of like dates back to when i started recording in college and like directly after college just like sort of pieced together a pretty bare bones mobile rig and just sort of kept that up. And now working at Dr. Wu's, like we, we have a pretty nice one, you know, eight channel sort of setup to, to go wherever. So that can be like a, a really fun way to get some cool sounds on a budget for sure. I don't know if you heard that Beach Creeps record that I worked on. No. Uh, that one we did like in a gallery space, like on my mobile rig, they, they had access to it. Like, you know, Light Up Gold was recorded in their practice space on a mobile rig. Yeah. It's fun. It's just like a, a different environment for sure. And I, I've got like a little home studio. My girlfriend and I have a two bedroom and she's a painter and animator. So we sleep in the living room and then each have a room. It's <laughs> like our <laughs> our personal space to go and be weird, you know, shut the door. And it's like, okay, I'll see you in a few hours. Oh, <laughs> that's a cool way of doing it. Yeah, yeah, we tried it. We tried it a bunch of ways, but we realized that we just kind of like have to do it this way. Yeah, and so like I spent the day. I think I got through uh, light up gold, uh, sunbathing animal, uh, the artwork, social rust, and your self titled eaters album. But like those kind of run, especially going from like eaters to liturgy, is like a crazy you know sort of two ends of the spectrum like eaters you're you're it seems to be although i guess really they're both in some ways just playing with texture but like with eaters it's 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 very very clean and purposeful and sort of like all those all the sounds sound like they were handpicked just for that sort of moment in time like what 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 was the recording of that like and 
as someone who's a producer who you know presumably has access to an incredibly wide range of sound palette of sound how do you start working away on your own stuff like how do you start you know narrowing that down well i you totally nailed it like you know with the production process it really is just like sound by sound like what what would sound coolest next uh, <laughs> <laughs> and but that project's cool um that started as another engineering project. It was my friend Bob that I had met in a few different social scenes. Like he was playing guitar and like band leader for Frankie Rose, uh, who I went out and did some live sound on a couple tours with. So we hit it off. And then he was also playing in this band called Ferguson Geronimo that Andrew Savage from Parquet Courts it was his old band. So I did a record with Ferguson Geronimo that Bob played bass on right around, right after doing this tour with him and Frankie. He was like, Hey, I, I have some, uh, some tunes that I really like, but I, I, I'm not quite sure what to do with them. So we, <laughs> this was right around the time Dr. Wu's got started. Uh, so we had pooled all our gear and, Yale, the owner, bought this console, and both of them, Yale and my other studio partner, Jake, were out of town. We like hooked it all up, and then I think it was like South by Southwest or something. Uh, so they they took off, and I was like, okay, well, I'm gonna like plug a bunch of shit in and see, <laughs> like test it out. And they're like, cool, cool, yeah, like write write anything, <laughs> fix what you can, write anything down you can't. So I had Bob come over, and you know he was kind of like the guinea pig for the studio. And so the first half of the Eaters record was those sessions. Oh, yeah. we It was really fun. Certainly, like, got involved in the arranging and, like, creative process. And so then it was like, okay, well, let's, let's like, make some more songs, the two of us. Uh, so that was the second half of the record. Um, and so, yeah, it, it very much, like, just in the studio experimenting, uh you know, maybe a song is just a beat and a melody and then build it up from there. Maybe something's more fleshed out and, you know, you're sculpted into something. That's definitely like at one end of the spectrum for me, you know, just like a, a piecemeal sort of part by part overdub kind of yeah. experience. And certainly something like Telecomo or Parquet Courts is on the other side where you have a song and a band playing it and you're documenting that. And, you know, certainly with the parquet courts records and especially as they've grown, they've become more overdub oriented and, you know, more, more full arrangements. But, you know, that, that initial idea of recording three or four people in a room at the same time uh, is sort of the other end of that for sure. Now, when you're doing somebody like parquet courts, who like, you have a, a like a tight relationship with are are you there in the room going like this doesn't sound enough like you this doesn't sound like you know the other side of that you're not pushing your sound out there enough like how, what's your sort of role in these situations where you like really know the guys yeah i i think with with that band in particular like we've we've recorded enough stuff both like parquet courts and with andrew and austin's other projects that certainly feel comfortable to pipe up if some, if I hear something that could be better done differently. Um, and that's, that's part of the fun for sure. But, <laughs> you know, by by the same token, like those guys are very 
opinionated and have a very clear vision in their head of what they're going for. So that's the other part of the fun is bouncing those ideas back and forth and, Oh, let's try this. And so I'll start patching stuff in. It's like, Oh, what about this? And then, you know, you just end up pushing each other into some other space that you wouldn't have found on your own. Yeah. And and do you ever, I guess the flip side of that is like with other bands who are maybe less fleshed out in what they're doing, how how do you, how do you strike a balance between making sure that you're pushing them forward, you're getting the recording done, but you're not sort of overbearing on them. You're not making it your project in some way. Like how how do you start doing that with like a band who's paid a certain sum of money to come and have you specifically record or mix or master do whatever for them? I mean, I th- I feel like every project, the personalities are so different and, you know, sometimes you get, a bunch of people that are just like, I don't know, what do you think? And so you kind of steer the ship a bit more. And sometimes you get people in there that have a really, you know, clear picture of what they're going for. So, you know, you're trying to facilitate it in that, in that way. But eaters is certainly something different, but a lot of these other projects, it's like, I'm trying to check my ego at the door. Like I'm, I'm just there to try and like help see a vision through you know it's it's almost like a a service industry that you want to make a record okay like tell me what kind of record you want to make like what's what's cool to you i'll tell you what's cool to me and we'll try and figure out something in between with eaters when you start when you become part of the band do you have discussions about okay these are things that i like that i want to sound like with the other person or is it is it more experimentation or like because you you have sort of the knowledge to do whatever you want sonically what what starts to what starts to limit you when you are writing songs for yourself i i think that's part of the cool cool things for me and bob about eaters is that the project really did stem from our interests and our fascinations with sound and you know, certain styles of music and, you know, love of synthesizers. And so the project is pretty open-ended in terms of, there's certainly things that we write where we're like, eh, that's, that's not eaters or like, that's a fun, (laughs) that's a fun experiment. You know, there's, there's some real wacky shit that we've laid down that I don't think anyone will ever hear, (laughs) but, uh, you know, like the cool thing is that the project really, like we recently finished a new record that I feel is pretty direct representation or maybe like, you know, leading further down the path of doing this project live. Like when we start, when we made the first record, we had no intention of ever getting on stage. You know, it was just us making things in the studio. Um, <laughs> and over the last couple of years since the records come out, you know, we played a bunch of shows and toured and figured out what works well and what in, in that context and what doesn't. So this record's definitely a reflection of that. But by the same token, like we, we work with a friend of mine that I, I met in college. He was at Cleveland Institute of Art um, and he's a glass sculptor and installation artist. So he works with us in our live show doing visual stuff but we've also collaborated um on a number of sound sculptures and installations and so that's that's like another way that that project just sort of flows into oh no way because i mean with the eater self-titled you guys sort of you run the gamut from almost like one or two of the tracks feel like they could be off of like another green world and then some of the other ones just like there's such a nice 
crisp distortion to them like there's you know stuff that you know would ever 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 touch like how how do you start piecing those things together for a live show like do you guys try to find a through line through all these things or like do you start changing up radically (laughs) yeah the (laughs) the when we first started talking to labels about putting out the record you know that was a a question of like oh are you gonna play this live you know a lot of labels want to see that Mm -hmm. before they put a bunch of time and effort into producing and promoting a record is trying to get the band out there. So we were like, Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. We'll do this live kind of bullshit our way through it. Uh, and you know, that was an important decision. Like, do we hire a bunch of people to get on stage with us? Do we like lug around half a dozen synthesizers and try and sync them up on stage or, you know, what do we do? So the, the decision was, ultimately to make a bunch of loops and samples in Ableton, like from the sessions or like from the sense, and then try to try to, you know, make it in a way that's open-ended so that we can jam on a section. Or if somebody misses a cue, you're not just like totally off from the backing track. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and that, you know, that in turn uh, influences the kinds of songs that we want to write. So, it's funny going back through the early session files or, or for the live shows. They're really simple. And the stuff we're writing now, it's way more tracks. Just making it more into a song than a jam, I suppose. <laughs> uh, one thing I, I want to touch on is just, I mean, you recorded and you helped mix the arc work. Yeah. Which I've listened to so many times. It's so dense. It's so musically all over the place. How... It's, it, it seems like the exact opposite of a telecomo recording session. How, how, does, how does something like that, how do you start chipping away at something like that? How, how does the recording process <laughs> for that start? Because it, it boggles the mind. Yeah, that, that record, I, I love that record. Honestly, I haven't listened to it that much since <laughs> we finished it. I really spent a lot of time and mental space in, in that record, but... It it is one of my favorite projects I've ever worked on. Just like I I will probably never make a record that sounds like that again. Yeah. You know, and uh, like for an engineer, and especially an engineer like myself, that's so important. That's so special. That record sounds that way because of Hunter, and those songs started as like Ableton demos that he did totally himself. And I'm, I was actually the third engineer involved in that project. And so by the time it came to me, you know, there was like Hunter's, some sounds from his original sessions, uh, some sounds from each of the other engineers. And then we went into the studio and recorded the band like live together, playing essentially stripped all those aspects away. So they were playing to, you know, click track and all these stems, you know, so like strings and synthesizers and glockenspiel and all that. And then just sort of built it back up from that. So certainly like the the first good chunk of time was just like getting all the session files and sort of picking through them and it's like what what are what are these things? And like how 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 what do they do together? Like what are what what are the what what are they trying to do here? And, you know, even throughout mixing and everything, it's still, you know, very much like, 
Hunter is like, no, 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 the glockenspiel should be the loudest thing. It's like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going right. to say, it's not often you hear sort of like a really nice sort of brought up in the mix glock on one song and then sort of like IDM glitching in another one and then just like like really, really harsh 808s on a third. Like it's, it, you know, things that never really seem to go together are just all over this record. And I, you know, it really, it, 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 I'm, it I'm glad you said that it, it seems like, something you'll never work on again because to me i listen to it it's like this is you know it's singular it's crazy it's absolutely i it's one of those records i return to because it's like uh you know sort of i love records that i can't get my head around the first time that takes me right two three four times to get around like i love jazz i love uh flying lotus i love apex twin anything that like there seems to be more going on than sort of is immediately on the surface really interests me and like this record it interests me because i just like it's a it's a record where you listen to it and you go where did they even start oh my god what like what is this yeah no i mean it it certainly rewards repeated listenings and you know really the attention that uh, the more attention you put into it the more you get out of it I i feel like a lot of people just didn't get that record or or didn't want to put the time in. It was just like, I don't, I don't get it. I don't, I don't care. (laughs) And you know, that's cool that you don't, it's not for you, but you know, it's certainly for, for me, like I made a, I made a decision pretty early on in my, you know, recording career for what it's worth is, uh, you know, to try and do something different on every session, you know, even if it's just like put up one mic that I've never tried before or, you know, like a a different approach and, you know, just to kind of keep it fresh and try and learn something new every session. And so a session like that, where it's so different and so many different new approaches or, you know, trying to like cram all these sounds into one space so that you can hear everything that, and everything's working together. It's not just like a complete mess. Uh, (laughs) It was, was really fun and rewarding and it was hard for sure, but uh, it was really fun. Now, were there ever points where you're just like, these things can't work together. It's too busy. Like, like it's not following sort of the, the rules of recordings or, you know, how everything's supposed to have like a nice place in the mix. Everything's supposed to be super balanced. Everything's everything in its right place sort of thing. Were, were there times where you're just like, I like, I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm adjusting the EQ on a Glockenspiel, but I don't know how that's going to help anything at all. Well, you know, we were talking earlier in the conversation about the way in which you work with, with the band or, you know, your client and um, Hunter, Hunter is definitely like one of those people that, has a very specific idea and you know i could certainly say what if we drop something out here so that when it returns it's more impactful but um ultimately like he especially being the third engineer in the process like he had he had tried these arrangements out you know every conceivable way by that point so he had a pretty clear idea of like what was supposed to be there yeah, we we had a couple conversations like that, but for the most part, it's like, oh, all right, you want all that? Well, we'll we'll figure it out for better or for worse. <laughs> <laughs> and how long how long did your recording sessions with him last? Like how how long? Like the in in total? 
I don't know, probably around six weeks, give or take. Okay. Because there was a, a bunch of prep time and then the recording um, and then some more prep to integrate that with the other stuff and then the actual mixing. Oh, and we re-recorded all the vocals too, but those those were actually pretty fast. You never know with vocals. They can either be like knock them out in a couple days or, you know, really tear your hair out, <laughs> hair out over it. <laughs> Hunter had uh, a map of his glitch edits. And so we, you know, and those were things originally done in Ableton. But when we re-recorded the vocals, you know, we had like this map that we were following and got so specific to the point of like how many milliseconds is this crossfade oh, no in way. between? Yeah. Like what's the closest to what uh, the Ableton original demo sounded like? Oh. So I think we ended I think we ended up with six milliseconds for a crossfade, uh, you know, but it, it was like that amount of detail is oh really God, something that like the initial time going through was probably 30 seconds to do right yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> but then like you know so it it wasn't so much a question of like does this fit it's like how do we make it fit holy like shit. How, how how do you how do you do this uh which was <laughs> maddening but really fun too God, yeah that, are you someone who likes comping takes? Like, do you, do you do you do Max Martin them? It sort of depends. I mean, a lot of the recordings. So, like Telecoma or Parquet Chords, or uh, you know, a lot a lot of these records like that that are more live from the floor, as you put it. I've really gotten into this style of recording the eight track. I really like this tape machine called an Otari mx 5050 it's like a half inch eight track um jack and dino who did a bunch of the early sub pop hits mm-hmm. that was like his tape machine and like the the daptone studio has one of those oh, okay. um, it's it's cool it sounds it's it's a really awesome machine when when we were doing i was working with parquet quartz on um tally all the things that you broke which is the ep that followed light up gold we did light up gold on Austin's um, Tascam 388, which is an eight-track uh, quarter-inch machine, mm-hmm. and it's it's like the size of a coffee table. It's got like a built-in mixer and like this little uh, reel-to-reel like in this thing, <laughs> uh, and it sounds really cool. Uh, super compressed, you know, not a ton of high end, um, and so when we were recording tally all the things that you broke we were working at a studio that had one of these otaris and so we did a shootout um where i i sent it off to the Tascam, i sent it off to the otari and i sent it off to pro tools (laughs) just so we could hear it and see what's up um and i actually we decided to go with the otari and actually bought one like immediately after those sessions because i was like oh this is the sound i'm looking for um I hope you posted those results up on gearslots.com. Uh, I don't know if I did gearslots, <laughs> but I did I did put it on SoundCloud and I did put it on Tape Op. Oh really? Um, and that that post gets more hits than anything on my website. It's <laughs> it's, it's pretty cool. I you know, from like a, a nerd 
total music nerd tech nerd uh perspective but i i i get random people coming up to me like on tour or something they're like oh i heard your shootout i'm like cool (laughs) (laughs) i get a lot of people like asking me where to buy otaris i'm like i don't know man uh craigslist (laughs) uh but you know it's it's a cool machine and so the there's a style i i've done a lot of records like this where it's just you know, maybe a band doesn't have a ton of money or, you know, they're, it's a first record or, you know, it, it really like should be this impactful um, sound of a band playing together and, you know, just record the drums down to, t- you know, sum everything down to stereo pair, bass, guitar, guitar, vocal. And then you have like a couple tracks plus wherever you're not singing to add percussion and guitar overdubs and whatever else and it's it's a uh it's a fun and like fast way to work it kind of keeps everyone focused on it um and it it mixes itself you know you're like deciding on your drum mix as you're hitting tape (laughs) um i don't remember what your question was (laughs) initially (laughs) but you know that's that's like a uh definitely a way in which i've made a number of records um that's very different from the artwork or eaters or anything like that you know where it's just overdub on overdub yeah uh one thing i think you give insight into um a lot of the friends of the podcast they'll often talk about sort of uh what a gift it is to uh sort of hand off production duties to someone else or hand off mixing or mastering duties uh, to someone else, but then also uh, like talking to somebody like Soons where they're like, you know, uh, if we had all the time in the world, we would still be in the studio making this thing. But like, let's let's talk about budgets for albums for a little bit, because I don't think that's something that a lot of people are super aware about, uh, especially in this day and age wherein you can, you know, anybody can go out and buy a, you know, a Scarlet 2i2 or whatever. And what changes when a band goes from like a small budget for a, a record to like a bigger budget? Like what are some of the things that changes for the way that you start processing it? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, honestly, that's one of like the main questions that kind of sets up how, you know, the approach for the record. Um, and I, I guess that's what we were sort of circling around with the, the eight track approach. Mm-hmm. You know, that's definitely like, a really fast and effective way to make a record. Um, and I guess a lot of that comes from how I started making records with, you know, favors or barters, or, you know, maybe somebody has like uh, saved up some cash and just trying to like cut my teeth, but it's all about like getting something to show for it. So, you know, you kind of work backwards. It's like, okay, well I got this much money that translates to this many days can we do a studio? Should we do it at the practice space? And you just kind of like work backwards from there. And obviously like a a punk band, you can make a record a lot faster than a experimental electronic rock Mm -hmm. uh, symphony, whatever, whatever you want to call it, (laughs) you know? Uh, And so obviously you got to take that into account when you're figuring out budget. But ultimately like for me, I feel like between, you know, making all these records and like doing live sound for a lot of years, you know, you just kind of like figure out how to get to the end. 
figure out your pathway before you even figure it out and just like, okay, well let's, let's try it this way. And then, and then go down that road. Okay. So it's not like at a certain price point, you start to care about the recording. It's, it's much the opposite way. Yeah, no, I mean, I, you asked earlier about like busyness or whatever. It's like, I don't like to take a project if I'm not really excited about it. Mm -hmm. And that's, for anyone you know that's listening that is like hey maybe that's why it didn't work with me like no offense or anything. <laughs> maybe i was just too busy but you know the i don't want to sell anyone short and you know if if you've only got a little bit of money then like we'll figure out a fast and effective way to do it i i certainly like don't there there have only been a handful of times where it's just like i'm sorry man like i can't i can't i can't make a record yeah. for that by and large, you know, it's it's like working backwards. It's like, okay, well, you want to do it for that much? Like, we can do it this many days. We can do it this way to make it fit that. And, you know, just kind of work backwards. And I've done a lot of really cool records with people that only had like two or three days to record and a couple days to mix. And we threw a master together at the end of the mix. And, you know, that's what it was. I certainly like, I'm not opposed to that. I'm at this point, I feel like I can I can work pretty quickly. So it's just a matter of like, what what do you want to do with your time? Another thing that I want to speak to you about is like you, you've done, like you do mastering, and how did you get how do you get started in that? Because that is still sort of uh, even in you know audio forms online, that is the dark science that no one uh, you dare not speak its name. Um, you know, it's still <laughs> it's still sort of alchemy how do you start mastering stuff and how do you start doing it to a point where you're like, okay, now I can master stuff for other people. Like what, when do you, when do you know that that is something you can do? Honestly, I feel like that, that that's just like anything else. I just said I could do it and bullshit my way through it until I was, until <laughs> I felt like that I was actually doing a good job at it. Um, but honestly, it's, you know, i asking people looking over people's shoulders trying it out you know the, I, some of some of my first masters like maybe they're not loud enough mm-hmm. or l- like i would make them louder now but um they sound fine <laughs> uh i think it's mastering is just like trying to tie everything together and make it sound better if you know and certainly not worse I'm not I'm still not sure if I do mastering like quote unquote right. I've I've worked with a lot of really great professional mastering engineers and always love getting feedback from them about what I can should be doing different mix wise or like what they're hearing that I'm not hearing. But uh I I guess I started doing a lot of my own mastering when it got to the point of sending things off to people to get mastered. And it's like, eh, I don't like the way that sounds like this thing, <laughs> you know, this reference master that I did is way closer to what me and, you know, the, my client were, were hearing or like envisioning. And, you know, after having enough experiences like that and just sort of learning through trial and error, you know, it's like, okay, well, you know, s- certainly we can send it to, you know, somebody at Sterling Sound and it'll sound amazing or, if you don't have the budget for that, let's just spend a couple extra days in the studio and get the mixes that much closer. And then we'll put a master together at the end. 
I think it really speaks to something that's, you know, a shift in uh, attitudes in music over the last couple of years. Like, I remember reading and loving uh, that book that came out, I don't know how long ago, uh, Perfecting Sound Forever. Uh, where the guy, I don't know that one. Oh, uh, so the guy, the writer of it basically uh, traces sort of two lineages of how people think music should sound. One is as perfect as possible and the other one is like sort of as naturalistic as possible and then sort of seeing like because edison would only let everybody record in front of like one microphone and then record that directly onto like a wax uh tape or whatever and mm-hmm. then like the first times electronic uh preamping was used people were like what is this noise it's harsh garbage blah 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 blah, blah. uh and then it sort of traces it all the way up to uh, you know, like Auto Tune and the the Black Eyed Peas, like super over compressing things. So like all their sounds are like there's like no dynamic range and it's all clipped compared to other things and things like that. And what is like what is the perfect sound these days? But I think um, at least in a lot of stuff I'm hearing these days, like we're we're getting away from that. Like people are starting to maybe not mainstream audiences, but like people are starting to accept you know music that doesn't sound like it was you know, a reference master, like it was perfectly, perfectly done in like a, you know, a sterile studio, which was swept every, like clean, sterilized every day, blah, blah, blah. Are, are you seeing changing attitudes towards that sort of stuff? That was a long question. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. I, it's a good question. I guess the people that I tend to work with aren't looking for like a totally manicured, like polished sound. Mm-hmm. Not, not to say that like, we can't make something sound larger than life, but I guess I feel really strongly like in, in everything, but especially this, like perfection is relative. Like my idea of perfect is different than your idea is different than, you know, the band that I'm going to work with tomorrow or next week. And it's just like aligning those points of view of, well, I like this, you like this, let's like find a way to merge those ideas so that it feels right to us. Um, and perfect is just like Peter Gabriel's album. So, uh, I, I, I get my, my philosophy is you just like work on it until you don't want to work on it anymore. So, you know, whether it's some, you're bored of it or you run out of money or you just like, it doesn't bother you anymore. Like that's perfect. <laughs> that's perfect. Yeah. You know, that's it, well, okay. So how do you apply that to the remaster of the night of the purple moon that you did? Uh, that was done off an LP. We recorded, uh, LP into pro tools. And then I did some noise reduction and like drew out some clicks and that, that was that, um, <laughs> Yeah, the studio that I worked at in Chicago, which was where I learned how to do mastering and I learned how to do sound for film, it's this amazing spot called Experimental Sound Studio. They're they're still active. They're super active, like way more than I was when I was there. But it's it's essentially like a uh, nonprofit sound organization. Holy um, yeah, and so they they have a recording studio on the premises they have a gallery they house sunra's archives they house um this guy malachi richter 
who went around and documented the Chicago scene for decades. Um, and they, they host a lot of events and performances around the city of Chicago. I started engineering there shortly after moving to Chicago and, uh, worked as studio manager for a while and, you know, just kind of learned everything I could from these guys. And when Sun Ra passed away, he was good friends with this guy, John Corbett, who uh, is a huge music fan and runs a, a gallery in Chicago called Corbett versus Dempsey. You know, he's closely affiliated with ESS experimental sound studio um, and so he, he just like got all these cassettes and reel to reels and LPs and stuff from Sun Ra and, uh, ended up donating them to experimental sound studios since as a nonprofit, they were eligible for all these grants and, you know, research money to do, uh, the proper restoration and archiving and stuff. So Corbett would come down every once in a while and be like, all right, let's, let's remaster this thing. And, you know, he had a bunch of these original pressings in his personal collection that maybe had only ever been played once. So I think that was, we had like the tapes and his LP and the LP sounded better than the tape. So we just went with that. Uh, <laughs> but that, that, yeah, that, that was one of my first experiences uh, with Sun Ra. Um, I still really love that record more than just about anything else of his that I've heard, but yeah, he's amazing. Like the, the archives were so perfectly bizarre. Like that's crazy that I, I didn't work on the archives, but um, you know, there was an engineer that would come in once or twice a week and digitize a bunch of stuff. And, <laughs> you know, it'd be like a cassette where Sun Ra was in the back of the, you know, recording studio, like when they were mixing a record and then halfway through it would like become an answering machine tape. And then like, <laughs> like, like 20 minutes later, it'd be like reversed. You know, he had like flipped it upside down in his four track or something. It was just so perfect. Jeez. Exactly what you would expect. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Holy smokes. That that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I learned so much from that place. Um, and they, I'm still on their mailing list. They're, uh, they're doing amazing things. If, if you think to look it up, uh, Experimental Sound Studio in Chicago. We'll definitely put a link in the podcast to it. Because um, that, yeah, it, it's one of the things that I think is, is very overlooked uh, in sort of this age where we can archive anything. It's like there's, there's a ton of music concrete. There's a, ton, there's a ton of a lot of different things that like, you know, either gets lost or misplaced or like we had rational youth on the podcast and they said like CBS studios or something like that just lost the masters to their, uh, their original album. And they only had like a copy of one of the masters that they had to bake and then uh, digitize those. And that was like the last time any of their original recordings would ever, 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 ever be heard. It, it, that just yes. boggles the mind looking back on it now in a 2016 perspective where I could put sort of the world's music library on a thumb drive. Wouldn't sound as good, but you could do it, <laughs> and it would never get lost. I heard that once. That like uh, I've heard that multiple times. That the the best way to back stuff up these days is put it online. But then you know, I I, I don't know about you, but I'm a I'm a big sci-fi reader, and there's certainly like a number of books or theories that I've read about um, 
you know, the, the crash of that, you know, as we're getting rid of libraries, getting rid of the physical things and relying on digital. And then, you know, maybe one day there's, there's not electricity. How do how do you, how do you get the, uh, your data then? How do you, how do you keep ideas going at that point? That's true. It is going to be tough to tell your kids exactly what went on in an ARCA record. <laughs> yeah. And then it sounded like this. <laughs> and then there were sheep bleeding. Um, but I guess one thing we sort of uh, touched on a little while ago, and I think it would be a nice thing uh, to sort of bring us all back now, is um, you've been working with sound, with music, with sound design in this realm for 15 years. And uh, what is it do you think people come to you specifically for? Like, is there a certain... I know you know each project is different, but is there something that you think people are coming to you specifically for that they want to see reflected in their own recordings? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. I I I guess for me, I can I can answer that from my perspective. Like like I said earlier, I feel like I try not to I try not to take projects that I don't feel invested in because I feel like that comes across in the end result. You know, it's like, yeah, I can like technically sit here and make it technically sound good. The exciting part about music isn't that it's well put together. It's that, that other thing. And maybe that's what it is, is like trying, trying to make something sound as exciting as it can be. And, uh, you know, whether, whether that's recording the band live to, tape or really breaking out of of that and trying to pick it apart piece by piece and build something up that's totally imaginary just that that idea of like what's what's the coolest this could sound that's that's where i'm coming at at, <laughs> at least <laughs> no i like that yeah i i think it's a I'd almost be suspicious of any producer who came out. It, it said that you know I, I want everything to sound specifically through this filter, through this lens, or something like that. I don't think that's someone who's serving uh, the people they're recording with uh, super well. Yeah, I've never, I've never really uh, agreed with that philosophy of like, well, this is my sound. This is the way I do it. This is the way I mic a kick drum or whatever. It's like, man, what's what's the point? Yeah. So we ask one question of everybody uh, who comes on this podcast. Uh, if you listen to the Telcoma one, you might have heard it. It's a, just a way of us sort of dividing the wheat from the chaff, the real artistry from the imposters. And that is who has had more of an influence on you artistically, Phil Collins or Peter Gabriel? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I my I, I feel bad because my my old roommate and bandmate, he'd probably be like screaming at me if he heard that question answer and I'd be like sitting here stalling because he was a Genesis, Genesis fan, like Peter Gabriel fan, like knew all those records inside and out. Yeah. Uh, and me, it was just always kind of like, like wander off to the next room to get a snack. <laughs> um, so I know Peter Gabriel is cooler uh, and he's definitely like the the like cool part of Genesis and did those records with Fripp. Uh, but then Phil Collins played with Eno, and so uh, 
both. <laughs> Gotta come down on one side or the other. I guess Peter Gabriel's cooler. It's true. I mean, Phil Collins was the sound of the eighties in a lot of ways. But uh he did. I mean the gated snare was made by Phil Collins on a Peter Gabriel record, so who's to say? And he did that uh Disney soundtrack with uh which Tarzan? Tarzan. I don't do Tarzan. I don't know. There we go. <laughs> You'll be in my heart and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, let's go with Peter Gabriel. Peter Gabriel? Cool. Yeah, yeah. Why not? I mean, I think they're both working on new records now, so we could probably judge in 2017. Uh, we'll come back and revisit it. <laughs> sounds sounds good. <laughs>
cleave to one another Soon thoughts will spurt out into expression Soon contraception will conquer the earth Soon cherubim give birth to single parents Soon gods will cover the caskets Soon I'll rule this until at last Soon I'll run this racket at last Soon the reason to go on living will be out